Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. Oh, hello. Hello, world. Hello, David Cobb. This is the Ion College Basketball Podcast. Thanks to everyone watching on YouTube live or after the fact. If you're listening, appreciate it. Gary Parrish is on vacation this week. He's on staycation. He's not doing the pod. So we're going to have a little bit of fun here. We're going to do a mailbag episode, which I am a huge proponent of. GP likes him as well, but he doesn't like him as much as I do. So we are going to take questions live on the show. We also have a litany of cues we're going to get to college hoops and otherwise but david great to be back with you i feel like we have not done this since like sweet 16 elite eight of the tournament just you and me is that right uh yeah you were like having a live freak out about caleb love's uh, crazy <laughs> second half for unc and i was just like 30 seconds behind on the stream and like huh i wondered what he's reacting to now uh that that looks like it's a lot of fun there we go. That's right. Yes, that was our first ever live podcast, you know, actual like come watch us experience a game together. That was uh, that was an eye on college basketball first here. Well, thanks for joining me. Uh, appreciate it. It is mid-July. We are in the thick of the college basketball offseason. The live period for recruiting has started. This is a dormant week. And then there will be more live period next week. I will be going down to the Peach Jam. And so I will be talking to you from North Augusta, South Carolina, or Augusta, Georgia, depending on where I record that podcast there. But uh, we're going to have a lot of fun on this episode. If you're looking for just a, you know, a little bit of a change of pace, we're more than happy to oblige. Before I get into a couple things here, one, thank you again if you do subscribe in any way in which you subscribe. Appreciate it. Continue to like, review, and all that stuff. It genuinely does help. And I want to let the audience know that you guys have helped us grow this podcast exponentially, basically since Nada has come on board. So I'm going to give Nada half the credit, the audience, the other half. It's been really, really good. But continue to support us in any way you can in the offseason because there definitely is a, a significant faction of listeners that stick around and then once we get to the season obviously more and more people listen but uh but there's an army about you there listening in the offseason we sincerely uh, appreciate that continue to leave reviews if you want to leave questions in the apple pod for a future mailbag episode please do that i will certainly consult with that and we'll still have a few more mailbags to go uh before we get to the season before we get to the questions i do want to quickly hit on and want to get david's thoughts on the story I broke on Monday, which is a relative, it's not like a huge story, but again, we're in the middle of the off season. So anything, I mean, we'll take anything at this point. So I, in short, I reported that the WAC, the Western Athletic Conference, this upcoming season is going to change the way that it seeds its conference tournament. It's going to do something that's never been done before. And what's going to happen is the WAC is going to take its league tournament and seed its teams one to 12 based upon how good they were for the entirety of the regular season. There will be a link to this story in this podcast description. If you have not yet seen it. Um, but in essence, what's happening here is whack commissioner, Brian Thornton 
And his associate commissioner, Drew Spira, who's a son of a former uh, longtime Iowa assistant, uh, assistant coach, Kirk, who just retired, they are former basketball coaches, and they wanted to figure out a way to, to better position the WAC to get into the NCAA tournament with an auto qualifier and then have that team be seated in the best line possible. New Mexico State's coming off of an upset win over to CD UConn. So what's going to happen is that with the aid of Ken Pomeroy, who created this algorithm, which is not really not that complex. I know when people hear algorithm and advanced analytics, they have a tendency to want to immediately check out. I get all that. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see Nada has, uh, has brought up the story there. But what Pomeroy is doing is he is basically saying he is basically set up for the WAC a system that will evaluate and reward or penalize teams based upon how they perform every single game of the season. One misnomer. I, th- this story got a lot more traction and, re- and response than I anticipated. I knew it would make a little bit of noise, but I was surprised at actually how much we got back on this. And Kyle, I'll tee you up in just a second here. But in essence. Every single win is a positive, and every single loss is a negative. It doesn't matter if you play the number one team and you lose, you still will get docked. If you play the worst team in the sport and you win, you will still get an incremental increase. But the reality is, as coaches and players will tell you, not wins are not created equally and neither are losses. It is harder to beat some teams than it is to beat others. Where you play that game, home, road, neutral, all these are actual real-world factors. And so what this is going to do is it's going to reflect that reality. And so what you will see on the WAX official conference page and standings for men's and women's basketball next season is you will see wins and losses. Those still do matter, but you will also see what they've shown me is they, they've titled it bonus. I don't know what they're going to title this other column, but it is going to be uh, a tally, a season-long tally that reflects how well you've done for the entire season. And the point that they're, the reason why they're doing this is to, again, give the WAC representative in the NCAA tournament the best chance at having the best seed. And what happens then? You have a better chance of winning a game. If you win a game, you get money for your conference, et cetera, so on and so on. Cobb, I'm sure you – I hope you read this story. But uh, your, your thoughts on what the WAC is doing here? Because I would say the response to this has been 75-25, either negative or not so sure about this. But there has been some enthusiastic approval as well. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, first thought was get off my lawn. This is ridiculous. This is the Gonzagification, the Ken Palmification of, of sports. You know, didn't like it. But like with many things, the initial reaction, once it subsides and you look into it and you realize how well thought out some things are, uh, it does make some sense. And I want to commend you for breaking the story, one, and then two, like, as you're saying, the attention is getting, you got like over 500 retweets on a whack story in July. Like, come on, like you struck a chord somewhere. So like, great job uh, on that. But I, I like it from the standpoint of, I saw a Ken Palm tweet this morning that uh, like uh, margin isn't necessarily going to be a huge part of this. It's just going to reward you more for uh, good wins and reward you less for bad wins and ding you less for good losses and ding you more for bad losses. So I think there's a a misconception that what we're going to see is a bunch of teams trying to run up the score on each other in WAC conference play for the purpose of uh, making their metrics look good so they can get a better standing in, in in the league standings. But I don't think that's a part of it. And so I think almost every rebuttal that people have, there is an explanation for, which I was pleasantly surprised by. 
Yeah, margin of victory uh, is not a factor whatsoever in this. So the idea that you would run up the score and uh, somehow damage yourself by doing it uh, is not the case. In fact, and this was pointed out by Bart Torvik, our friend on Twitter as well, uh, in, a, in a system like this, uh, you actually want to beat your opponent by one point. You want to strengthen the quality of your opponent by as much as possible. Uh, it doesn't incentivize you to run up the score if the formula was tweaked to, to have margin of victory, which it doesn't here. I, I like the fact that we have a conference that's trying something different. I like the fact that we can have some diversity of thought in college sports. This is not necessary and will never happen in a power conference level. Uh, I was surprised at the at the response to it because it is the whack. I think the majority of people that respond to this are not whack fans. They didn't attend whack institutions. I'm sure the some whack of them is did, but... whack. The whack is whack and has always been whack. And if you go and look at that, the history of that league, I mean, it's a revolving door of teams. It's just, it's just crazy. It's a crazy league. So uh, I, I love that they're, yeah, I love that they're the ones who are trying this. And I think the important thing to note as well, I think for fans of some conferences, uh, the Big Twelve, for instance, there's ten teams in that league. They play an eighteen game conference schedule. Every team, you know, Kansas plays every, everybody in that league twice during the regular season. It's very neat. It's very symmetrical. Everybody plays the, the other teams the same number of times. Well, in a lot of other leagues, the WAC included, that's not the case because of the number of teams that are in it, uh, the number of games that they play. Some teams end up playing a much more difficult schedule in the league than others. And that's, that's the key part of this is actually, I guess, if you want to look at it in a certain way, it makes things more fair because it balances out those uneven uh, uneven rungs in the way that the conference schedules play out on a year-to-year basis. Yeah, and some people have an issue with the fact that this is non-conference that's included. To me, that makes it more fair. You're actually fairly evaluating a team for season-long performance, and it's just good business practice. And this is more than an experiment. You know, Thornton told me this is the, the expectations. This is going to be a permanent thing that will be open to some tweaks if need be as we record this podcast the WAC has actually not officially announced this but i think that will happen on tuesday and if not tuesday it'll happen on wednesday and if you want all the details again go read the story but um i think it is important to note that this is just one league it wouldn't surprise me if we saw a couple other leagues do it but it's it's just their way leagues have the power to determine however they want to seed their postseason bracket to determine their automatic qualifier um, this also threads the needle between setting up your teams in an ideal spot, strongest to weakest in your bracket, but still remaining beholden to a conference tournament, putting yourself on television, giving the team that's seated fifth, sixth, ninth, like the hope you're in the bracket. If you win it, you're going, you're going to the tournament. If you win it, you got to win it. But this just sets it up to be the most fair overall uh, I do like it. I do like it. I think it is. I think it actually is a practical approach, even though there are people that reflexively think this is advanced analytics run amok. It really isn't. And the process at play here is actually not that complicated. Um, I don't want to burrow too deep into how this is actually going to work, but I'll do a quick explainer and then we can move on to, uh, to mailback questions. Essentially what Pomeroy did was he looked at, the 150th team overall in the sport. That's a little bit above average. And I'm not going to get into all the nuance on this, but basically that line right about there is the sweet spot for where WAC teams should try and pit themselves 
from a percentage standpoint about how they would play against different teams overall. I'll read you a few different. This is actually from the WAC. I'll read you how this actually works. So every game, every game has a 1.0 overall value to it or 100%, right? So the, the 150th team, last year, San Diego State was 25th overall, okay? The 150th team in the country, if it played San Diego State at home, it would have had a 74.9% chance of losing that game. So if you beat San Diego State or the 25th team, uh, you would get plus 0.749. How do you make up for the rest of that? It's 0.251. Your penalty would be minus 0.251. I get it. Some people are listening to this and they're probably like, oh no, they're going to add up all these things. This is what we have to pay attention to. It. I promise it's not that complicated, but the better the team the higher the reward, the worse the team, the more harsh the penalty. And yes, whether you play it at home, on the road, or on a neutral floor will dictate how high or low those rewards are. And it is a season-long updated daily tally that the WAC will have. And then at the end of the regular season, once the WAC finishes regular season play a day or two after that, the standings will lock, they will seed, and they will go play their conference tournament. I'm certainly intrigued by it. One other thing from this that I don't know how they're going to resolve is David the NCAA doesn't release the the net rankings until like the first week of December, and the reason they don't do that is because if we saw the net rankings on November nineteenth, you would have like a Colgate situation all over again, right? A team would be ranked seventeenth that by the end of the season is going to look one hundred seventeenth, but it would look wacky, and then the NCAA is opening itself up to just you know predictable and obvious and uh, wrote criticisms there. So is the WAC going to be able to publicly disclose these standings before the net is made available for public consumption on a daily basis in early December, or will we not get that until early December? That I don't have an answer to yet. They're still trying to figure that out, but uh, it certainly will be intriguing. It's a nice little wrinkle for the WAC, and we'll see uh, We'll see how it shakes out this upcoming season. Yeah, I'm glad the WAC is the one doing it, right? It, it, it's the WAC. Who cares? I mean, it's, it's probably a one-bid league. So it's it's the perfect league to to guinea pig this on, and uh, it's. I mean, yeah. If it was, if the SEC came out with this, it'd be like, okay, what what are we doing? What's going on here? You know, uh, it's the it's the whack. So, uh, how often you know do our listeners pull up the whack standings on a weekly basis? Right, like exactly. You know, uh, that that's 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 where I fall on this. Eventually, is that okay? At first, it's a little weird. Okay, they did a good job of answering most of my questions, and at the end of the day. You know, we're talking about a, a likely one-bid league here. Likely one-bid league, and we'll see how it how it all shakes out. I, I'm certainly I'm certainly intrigued by it, and I like the fact they're doing it. By the way, the WAC and its commissioner, Brian Thornton, was also one of the driving forces behind a story we, we talked about two months ago um, where they're trying to get a non-conference two games for all the teams that aren't in power conferences to play in February a non-conference scheduling Alliance, where you wouldn't find out the games until January and you would be paired against similar teams. Uh, Thornton did talk to me about that. There's an update in the story, but basically there's another meeting. I think later this month, they have to decide by September if they're going to do this. There are indications that many, many leagues want to do this, but they need the A-10, the Mountain West, the West Coast Conference, and the American to really go in on this to give it viability and kind of a, a national uh, reach. So there is optimism, but they are not quite there yet. All right, let's get to a bevy of mailbag questions here. We're going to do that, but not a first. 
Check this out. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do, like me taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, mailbag time here. If you're watching live, feel free to drop in questions. We'll take them. We have a lot of questions that were sent in over Twitter. We are well prepared for this, but we'll take some live on the show as well. And let's have a little bit of fun here. So I'll, I'll, I'll start it off here. Brendan asks, in your opinion, by the way, I'm so tempted to play a, a music bed under these questions, but I will not do it, at least not yet. Brendan asks, in your opinion, why does there seem to be no initiative to separate football from basketball? Many basketball programs have suffered due to realignment, i.e., Q's, BC, Pitt. It seems short-sighted to drag basketball along with football when basketball is also a moneymaker and important to alumni. All right, big picture question here. I'll give my thoughts and then I obviously want Cobb to chime in. Here's the deal. Basketball is a moneymaker, but with the exception of, you know, a handful of schools, there are some, a few dozen. Uh, basketball does not make money. It's the NCAA tournament that makes money that filters down to the conferences and then to the schools. It is such a moneymaker, and we'll get to the tournament in just a second here. Splitting it off, I think, would be fine. I would like it. I talked to some coaches in the past month that have said football, and I think I mentioned this on last week's podcast in passing, from scholarship limit to the amount of offices the football program takes up in a, at a given athletic department, the way it's operated, budget, everything. Football is on an island, especially major conference D1 football. It is not even remotely the same as any other sport. I think I said the difference between football and men's basketball is a greater gap than men's basketball to any other scholarship sport at a D1 school in most instances there. Football pays the bills. So while it would be great – if football could, if we could have conference realignment split off, right? And the Big Ten went to 16 teams, but it was only USC and UCLA that did it in football. And USC and UCLA remain Pac-12 schools. That would be ideal, but it's it's not going to happen. At least it's not going to happen anytime soon because football is funding so many of these athletic departments. It's And it's under the umbrella of the athletic department. Separating that would mean that football would take all the money or most of the money. And what would happen then? Hundreds, and if not thousands of people would lose jobs. 
a lot of scholarship sports at a lot of these schools would simply go away. There would be workarounds, and there are schools without football, obviously, Gonzaga, Xavier, a lot of Big East programs, right? But those aren't the ones that you're really seeing that much in realignment there. Um, there's no initiative to separate football from basketball because so many of these athletic departments need football for sustenance to to validate employing as many people as they do and having as many scholarship sports as they do. There would be some workarounds, but that chain is still so linked that we are we're not we're not yet there. Some people see a future, David, where the football program is merely it says USC on the helmet or USC on the jersey, and it's affiliated with the university, but it is an entirely separate entity. We could eventually get there. That's like a truly semi-pro kind of situation beyond what we have now. But the powers that be in college athletics are not willing to take that kind of step because it is a big one and it is a very, very heavy knot to untangle. Yeah, so the the people who are driving realignment right now, uh, university presidents, power conference commissioners, they'll give you a lot of gobbledygook about the welfare of student athletes. But ultimately, I think their primary role is as CEOs of businesses. And when you're the CEO of business, you know, maximizing profit is your priority. And right now, the best way to maximize your profit as a conference or as a, a power conference school is by uh, getting the most TV revenue that you can. Because a lot of times booster donations are kind of tapped out. Ticket sales kind of tapped out as a revenue source for the most part. TV revenue is not. Media rights revenue is not tapped out. And if you can position yourself to maximize the the revenue that you're getting from your media rights deal, you know, that's what you're going to do. And football is 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 the driver for that. And so that's that's the explanation for it. Uh, and everything else is secondary, including a lot of times even wins and losses. Uh, talking about, you know, Syracuse basketball, life was probably better for them in the Big East, right, than, than it has been in the ACC. But uh, the money is better um, in, the, in their new world, and they kind of, you know, had their, their hand uh, there. So, uh, and, and including, you know, the – the future of the NCAA tournament. That's another one of the things that, that is secondary to maximizing revenue, it appears. So my question in response to this question would be, why can't we have some schools that have multiple conference affiliations? Why can't we have a school that is in the Big Ten for football, but in another league for basketball and for non-revenue. I mean, to me, that seems like a relatively easy answer to some of these issues. But, I mean, that's... It can. Now, that does happen. Like, there's there's a few sports, um, volleyball, beach volleyball, water polo, that USC and UCLA are not leaving the Pac-12 for because the Big Ten literally does not offer them. So you And you get this in hockey. You get it in baseball sometimes. You do have that where a university will have affiliations with different sports in three or four conferences that does happen, but it doesn't, we don't see the splinter between football, men's and women's basketball, and usually some of the other bigger sports. It, it, maybe it should. And f- frankly, it probably should for geographic reasons and budget reasons. It probably should. But again, once the money is so huge, universities are going to validate all this travel saying we have it. We might as well do what we want. One conference affiliation. You got big bosses that get in a room and they're saying, yeah, we want, we want you on board for everything, but, we're not quite there. All right. Joseph Sox asks, if co- similar question here. If college football separates itself from the rest of college sports, again, we're ways from that, but and college basketball conferences are able to restructure without considering football, what are the first moves you'd want to see? Bring back the old Big East, Maryland to the ACC. Okay, so I'm simply simplifying this question. Here are the five. It, it, 
my world, I can change everything. The five individual realignments yeah. that I would choose to return. This is only from a basketball perspective. I'm not concerned about how this would affect, no offense, football, women's soccer, baseball, none of that. This is only a basketball perspective. This is a college basketball podcast. And I'm not going to include, because my answer, like I would keep USC and UCLA in the Pac-12 and I would keep Oklahoma and Texas in the Big 12. I'm, But I'm not including those. Those have not become material yet. So I'm not including those. So here's my five in order. Syracuse to the Big East. I mean, what are we doing here? Maryland to the ACC. I still, once or twice a year, will be writing something and will accidentally put Maryland in the ACC. I usually catch it myself, and if I don't, wonderful editor Marcus Nelson will catch it. I still do that. I still don't associate Maryland with the Big Ten. Number three, Missouri to the Big 12. That school sticks out like a sore thumb in the SEC. Get them out of there. Get them back in the Big 12 and officially renew the twice-a-year rivalry with Kansas. Number four, a little bit off the radar, and this is – I've got some Northeast bias with this, but get Boston College back to the Big East. It is a waste of space and arguable, arguably has been the biggest loser of any power conference school in realignment over the past 20 years. It leaves the Big East for the ACC in 2003 – has done nothing since. It had Matt Ryan play quarterback, and there was one brief moment in the early part of that where they were making a little bit of noise in the NCAA tournament, but since then, it's been nothing. It has been disastrous. Andrew Carter, for the News and Observer down in North Carolina, had a good story uh, earlier this week about how the ACC, you, you could say that this started you know, back in the 90s with the SWC getting broken up and all that, but really, like as we understand these things now, Cobb, the ACC raiding the Big East and taking Boston College, Miami, Virginia Tech, and then later, obviously, Syracuse and Pitt and all that. And now look at the ACC. Like, it's, it's, it's not going away, but it's, it's not nearly operating from the strength of uh, position that it once had. So that's four. And then five, I wouldn't consider this a top five important school. But again, I'm, going, I'm making the, the Big East from an 11-team league like it is now to go to 14 Rutgers to the Big East. The fact that this school, the fact that Rutgers is in the Big Ten remains hilarious. It has no business being there. And the only reason, the only reason Rutgers went to the Big Ten to begin with, Cobb, do you, if you listen to the pod, maybe you remember I brought this up. Do you even remember why this happened? Do you remember what the impetus was to get Rutgers out of the Big East and into the Big Ten, aside from football? What was the other reason? Do you remember? I really don't. I really have no idea. It was because of the New York, New Jersey, television market and the idea that they would be able to add a significant number of subscriptions to the big mm. 10 network for cable. And this is so outdated. Rutgers has done a fine enough job. I get that they're doing, they're actually finally treading water. Now, if not a little bit better than that, get them out of there. Rutgers back to the biggest. So those are my five. If I, uh, you know, I'd go back to how it was 15 years ago in general, 20 years ago, but Syracuse, Maryland, Missouri, Boston college, Rutgers. Any thoughts, any follow-ups? You know, they say when you're, when you're flying into La- LaGuardia, or JFK on a Tuesday night when when Rutgers is playing Purdue, every uh, window on the Manhattan skyline is flickering with the same TV broadcast of that Rutgers-Purdue basketball game. It's really amazing. Um, To your point, Missouri really does look like a thumb sticking up out of the SEC footprint. Like when you look at a map, like it all makes sense. And then there's like Missouri sticking up way uh, out of line there. Uh, yeah, Kansas and Missouri reuniting them was the first one I had written down. That was a natural basketball rivalry that uh, I think made a lot of sense. Uh, one you didn't mention that I think would be just so important and so obvious. 
let's get Gonzaga into an actual basketball conference. Like, no, I know everyone loves the WCC. Like this is my like football power conference elitist, you know, sort of coming out, but like, you know, that it's, it's fun. You know, uh, St. Mary's has, has their moments and Santa Clara has their moments and San Francisco was, was great this past year, but let's get Gonzaga into a real basketball conference. Even if that's the leftovers of the PAC 12, you know, post realignment, that would still, I think, be good for the game if we could get Gonzaga into a league and, and into a position where Gonzaga isn't this like flashpoint, you know, which side are you on debate all season long? Because with them continually being at the top of the Ken Palm rankings, we just every year have this debate um, over whether or not they're legit. And if we could get them some more games in January, February, and early March against quality opponents, then I think that would ultimately be good for Gonzaga and for the for, for the sport of college basketball. Well, one, you're feeding into the next question, which I'll get to in just a second. Two, I wrote a column April, early May, about this very thing about how Gonzaga should look for an alliance with the Big 12 or Big East and literally try and schedule two or three games uh, later into the season if it can. That was before we learned what happened with the Pac-12. And then we find out, like, the Pac-12 should, in my opinion, I'm not saying it will, the Pac-12 should look to bring Gonzaga in and improve its basketball product there because it would make it more valuable. Hoya, uh, we have another question here from Hoya Mentali asks, will the Big East add anybody in realignment? So you bring up Gonzaga. All right, here's my read on this right now. Because I think the Big East, it's, it's, uh, it's considering, I think, going to one more. And has been considering that for basically since they brought UConn on. It's just been an ongoing curiosity there. Gonzaga would be the leading candidate. Now, I've been told that there's a lot of schools that would not vote to bring Gonzaga in for many reasons. The biggest being travel. Like, they don't want to... Providence, Villanova, St. John's, these schools don't want to have to fly across the country to play a program that, under Mark Few, is better than them Villanova being the exception, like on a year in a year out basis. Now, Gonzaga would also have to do travel and they would have to do more travel and you'd have to figure out a way to 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 have them play at DePaul. And then you come back and you, you get Creighton on, on on two days later and you fly back home. Um, I think they're constantly evaluating. Now, remember, the Fox deal, the Big East has a deal with Fox. The majority of that deal that's up in a couple of years there's maybe potential for that. Gonzaga, from uh, from a philosophical standpoint, is the best fit. And if Gonzaga was located instead of in Washington State, David, and was in the middle of Missouri or even in South Dakota, I think they'd be in the Big East by now. It's just it's yeah, well, it's, it's out there. And yeah. so, well, let me ask you: Should the Big East add Gonzaga or anyone else, or just stay at eleven? In your opinion, I, I don't feel there's a natural addition right now for the Big East. If Memphis gets desperate enough to where they're willing to go independent for football amid all this realignment, then Memphis would make sense because it's a really strong basketball brand. But they're in the process of trying to refurbish their football stadium and sort of doing a little peacock strut for the Big 12, the ACC, whoever, from a football standpoint. So it still seems like we're a ways out from that. I don't, at the top of mind, have a natural addition. I think Gonzaga joining the leftovers of the Pac-12 makes way more sense than Gonzaga joining the Big East. All right, now we've got a number of questions that have come in on the chat here. So fire fire one away. Cobb, you can take this one first. All right, we'll start with Kyle Galvin's question because it's a really good one. He asks, is the Pac-12 still a Power 5 conference? It's Arizona and Oregon and eight other teams that don't care. Is it better for Arizona to move to the Big 12 to keep relevance, i.e. play Kansas? 
Yes, I do think that it would be better for Arizona and for those four corner schools and probably for Oregon and Washington to move to the Big 12 because you could argue that power, the Pac-12 was no longer a, a Power 5 conference even before USC and UCLA, UCLA left. It's been since 2016 that they had a team in the college football playoff. And then from a basketball standpoint, they had their flash in the pan run through the NCAA tournament a couple years ago when Oregon State randomly got hot and whatnot. But by and large, it's been a little bit down from the basketball side too. And I get really excited thinking about a Big 12 that has Arizona, uh, Utah, Oregon. You're adding Houston. You're adding BYU. You're adding Cincinnati. I think that could, will be, would be the best basketball conference in America and the clear third best football conference as well. So I love that idea. And the Pac-12 had a chance to sweep in and catch some of those Big 12 schools last year while uh, the re- first wave of realignment was going on when Bob Bowlesby was in a defensive position. And they they thumbed their nose up at uh, schools that aren't in the AAU uh, academic uh, tier and, uh, you know, uh, TCU's uh, religious affiliation, you know. And it's like, come on, man. Like, you guys missed a great opportunity to, to survive. And now I think the big 12 should uh, show its teeth a little bit and go out and, and make a run at, at some of those leftover teams. All right. I'll answer this from a standpoint of just what I've heard and talking to people I've talked to. I've talked to four non coaches. So either commissioners or associate commissioners or ADs in the past week about this stuff. So this is my read on this right now. Um, the expectation is nothing else is going to. And I'll answer the question at the end of this, but the, uh, nothing else is going to happen in the short term. Now there was a report. I think Matt Hayes had this, and then Dodd confirmed it Monday that the SEC is going to stick at sixteen. Now again, what's true one week is not true the next. I get all that, but as as it is known right now, the SEC has no plans to add any other teams to its sixteen team arrangement. And what I was told a few days ago was that the like Greg Sankey in the middle of doing all this transformation committee stuff wants to get Oklahoma, Texas in the SEC and really just, you know, can we get comfortable with each other before we, you know, make the jump to 18 or 20 teams? And I, I happen to believe that this talk about 20 team leagues, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying it won't happen. I don't think it's going to happen. I've been told that the pack, the pack 10, as it will be here, um, more likely to stay at 10 than maybe necessarily add schools. Now you want Boise state wants to get in there. Uh, I've been told by two people that the Oregon schools and the Washington schools would have strong viability to, to try and rebuff that uh, San Diego state would give you more presence in the California area. Um, again, there is some hoity toitiness with the pack 10 schools. I keep wanting to say pack 12, I guess te- technically it's still the pack 12, but UCLA and USC are not involved in these discussions anymore. They're leaving. They are not on these calls. Um, UNLV, and then would you bring in Gonzaga or not? Uh, the Big 12, Dodd reported it was, you know, really playing footsie, and that was I th- that was accurate, but there's not a feeling like the Big 12 is going to get Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, Colorado. There's not the feeling that that's happening anytime soon. I And I said this a couple shows ago, my prediction is that we will st- still have five big conferences. This is so college sports, by the way, like it's not really a power five anymore when the big 10 is going to be what it's going to be. The sec is going to be what it's going to be. And then you'll have the ACC, the big 12 and the PAC 12 
like they'll still carry weight and some influence, but they're just there's just <laughs> so overshadowed by these other two conferences there. Um, yes, it still is a power conference from a voting perspective in the room. It very much is, you know, the the casual college fan and media calls it the power five in 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 those calls they call it the uh, autonomy five or the autonomous five because the pac-12 big 12 sec acc and big 10 their their votes on all these issues have a weight to them that outflank you know if it's the big 10 voting on one thing it, it, it one big 10 vote means more than one sunbelt one american and one ivy league vote combined so i do think that the pac 12 10 is still a power conference. It's just diminished there. And I don't think I, there's, I don't think any of these conferences are dissolving. I think we will look up in five to seven years and they will all still be there. And then they will all still exist. That's my read on what, uh, what I've heard from you. Got any other thoughts on that Cobb? before I get to the next one or should I just roll? Yeah, I think a huge part of this and keep in mind, I write football for our site as well. And I think a, a large part of this conversation and an answer that we don't have yet. One, what's Notre Dame going to do, but then two, yes, yes. Big yeah. Time. Two, what about college football playoff? What's that going to look like in the future? Because if you're Oregon or you're Washington and you can be a part of a Pac-10 that still has access to the playoff, that's not a bad deal because all of a sudden you look around, USC's gone. UCLA, at least a decent program, they're gone. So it's pretty much Oregon and Washington in terms of football powers. Everyone say hello to the train outside my window. Hello. I was like, what is that? This is actually, uh, so Finkelstein and I have been doing these weekly uh, uh, shows on the YouTube channel. And uh, as I was opening the show yesterday, the the, the train whistle blew. Like, anyway, it's Amazing. great. But um, no, I would say that has, should play a factor in it. If you're Oregon or Washington and you're thinking about, all right, what can we do to position ourselves better? Well, like, let's maybe take a step back here, get a better sense of what the playoff is going to look like, because if we're still going to have access as a quote-unquote power conference to whatever the the college football playoff looks like in the future, that's not a bad deal, because it's, uh, you know, you two and and the eight dwarves left from a football standpoint, and and that would be a a pretty sweet deal as a coach of one of those two programs to have access to the college football playoff. All right, we got a few music ones uh, interspersed through here, so I'll take this first one. I'll be quick on it. Russell Bowman asks, I need Matt Norlander's full breakdown of the four Ben Folds 5 studio albums from Breast to Worst. I will give you this. I'm not going to do full breakdown. we got to keep this thing moving along. But if you're unfamiliar with Ben Folds 5, uh, breakout hit in the 90s with Brick, but uh, that wouldn't make my top 25 Ben Folds 5 songs. Whatever and ever, Amen is my number one, although that probably changed in recent years because for a good... 15 years, the unauthorized biography of Reinhold Messner was my favorite Folds 5 record. That is now number two. The self-titled album, which was their debut, would be number three. And then they had a record come out. They went on hiatus, then they got back together and they did a crowdfunded studio album, The Sound of the Life of the Mind, which came out in 2012. That record's almost 10 years old. Are you kidding me? That would be a strong four. These are really four really good records. If you are unfamiliar with Ben Folds 5, they were the 90s were an amazing time, people, because different bands... And different artists with different compositions. And, and like Ben Folds 5 made it. They don't have a guitar player. They were bass, piano, drums, three-piece. That's it. A three-piece without a guitar player became a viable pop rock act in the 90s. Incredible. Um, favorite song, Selfless, Cold, and Composed. Kate, Don't Change Your Plans. Jane, Battle of Who Could Care Less. Where Summer Be. Jackson Cannery, Sky High. Those are some of my favorite Ben Folds 5 songs. Before we go to the next question, any 
any Ben Folds Five fandom whatsoever in you, David Cobb. No, I was I wasn't listening. What did you just say? Okay, there what we go. The That's all I needed to know. Next question. Cody Marmon <laughs> asks, what's the floor for Anthony Grant's sophomore crew in Dayton? Seems like they're bound to make a, a big jump with everyone back. Well, they got a pretty good floor. If you're unfamiliar with the Flyers, let's get into a little bit of uh, into the niche here. Deron Holmes back. Tamani Kamara back. Malachi Smith. Not the Malachi Smith at Gonzaga. Different one. Kobe Elvis, one of the top 10 names in the sport. The Flyers are going to bring back a higher percentage of their minutes than a lot of other NCAA tournament contenders. And it seems like it's going to be a one-two with St. Louis and Dayton for top billing in the A-10. I haven't, I have not yet done my rankings um, on face value. I think I, I think I would lean slew over Dayton, but it'll probably be close. Now, remember, like I say, Dayton should project as an NCAA tournament team. There have been plenty of instances over the past six, seven, eight years where teams projected to be top two in the A-10 going into a season and seem semi-safe as NCAA tournament contenders, they wound up falling short of that, going to the NIT or worse. So that has to be on the table because that has actually been something of a pattern in that league. But my blind projection on the Flyers is, I don't know, I'll say I'll say Dayton gets an 11 seed, 2023 NCAA tournament. Any thoughts on Anthony Grant's Flyers, Mr. Cobb? Yeah, so actually Deron Holmes and Malachi Smith were two players that kept coming up when I was doing the Frosh Watch this past season, which is a weekly ranking of the top 10 freshmen in the sport. They were on the fringe for a good part of the season. I don't know that either one of them ever cracked the ranking on a given week, but I know Holmes was right there in consideration almost every week. Malachi Smith, great year as well. So one, it's awesome to see a quote-unquote mid-major keep the majority of its roster intact in the transfer portal era. That's warms my heart. Uh, Then, you know, if the question is floor, I would say, you know, they were 24 and 11, right? uh, Last year, you know, so floor 20 wins, um, which is a pretty doggone good floor, but ceiling, I mean, six or seven seed in the uh, NCAA tournament with a chance to, to make a run through the first weekend. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's yeah. yeah, Six, seven seed. I would say floor is NIT. I, I, not that they can't fail to make the NIT just with everything they have coming back. I think that's, that's pretty hard not to, uh, not to Tom Fornelli name sounds familiar asks why is Gary Parrish so scared to put Illinois in his top 25 and one? Is it because the program is already too powerful and he fears it would become an unstoppable juggernaut with his support? Tom, it's baffling my man. It's baffling. All right. This question was for GP. GP is not here to defend himself. (laughs) Isn't that a damn shame? All right. The line I have Matthew, Matthew Meyer via Baylor, Terrence Shannon jr. Via Texas tech. Uh, they bring back Coleman Hawkins, power forward, RJ Melendez. Illinois has the ninth ranked class coming in, led by point guard Sky Clark, who I cannot wait to watch play. Um, Ty Rogers is a top 50, uh, top 75 player, power forward. Combo guard Jaden Epps is a four star. They've got enough to consider them top 26 overall. I, again, I haven't begun my process of the one to. I mean, are we up to 362, 363 teams? This is insane. Stop adding teams to Division One. I. I hate it. 363? Are you kidding me? I got to do that at some point. Uh, I guarantee you I will have Illinois in my top 30, though. They will definitely be in my top 30. I I would, I don't know. I, I, I think I'll probably put him top 25. I don't know. Maybe. Matthew Meyer, I don't know if any of us picked him last week when we did our dribble handoff as to the most impactful transfers. But... He certainly could be. We'll see. Uh, he always felt like, I don't know if you agree with this or not, Cobb, but 
whenever I watch Baylor play with Meyer the past two years, like he never got out of fourth gear. I never felt like I watched a game that was like, that was the Matthew Meyer game. And it feels like he's got that potential and he had some good performances, but I've never seen a definitive one. I wonder if going to Illinois, if he will be able to like significantly break out to a level where he's a top seven, eight player in that league. I wonder if that'll be the case. What are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I went through and did winners and losers of the transfer portal. And even though Illinois lost Grandison to Duke, and even though they lost Curbelo to St. John's, I still ranked Illinois as a winner from the portal because Terrence Shannon and Matthew Meyer were two guys that I had ranked in my top 25 in terms of transfers this offseason. So I think they made a net gain from the portal. And of course, you lose Kofi. So I guess that if I had to put myself in Gary's brain, which is a scary proposition. Uh, the loss of Kofi perhaps is just so insurmountable. I, I don't know. I mean, he's clearly a unique player that they're going to have a hard time replacing. But I, th- I think Illinois is a top 25 team. I'll say that. Please listen to Tom Fornelli and support the Cover 3 podcast. That's your college football podcast on CBS Sports Podcast. Those guys do great work, have a lot of fun. Very, very fun podcast. If you enjoy on college basketball and you like college football, first of all, I assume you already are aware of it, but yes, go find Cover 3 Podcast. Don't know if they've ever promoted I on college basketball. Let's get it together. Chip, I bet you Chip has done it. All right. Uh, another music one. Dadaline, I asks, what are the top three songs that use a harmonica, not counting Blues Traveler songs? Is Midnight Rambler in the top three? First of all, trivia time. Midnight Rambler is a song by who, David Cobb? Uh, oh, boy. The, uh, I knew it. The Beach Boys. Oh God! You know what? Your era is not that far off. Nada, maybe not. Nada. Do you know? Do you know who who does Midnight Rambler? I do not. And I I I I'm mad at myself for not knowing this answer. All right. So Midnight Rambler is a Rolling Stone song. Now I'm not big on the Stones, and it's not for not trying. It's just one of those. Everyone's got these artists, these bands, right? Who are your like? Give me each of you. Nada. Artist band that is near universally acclaimed by fans or critics, but you just have never, have never gotten into them. Who would that be for you? This is going to be blasphemy. And I know you're going to hate me for this. Oh, it's no. the Beatles. Oh God. Oh my gosh. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. I need a job. Come on. Drop for that. Uh, Cobb, who do you got? Uh, probably Dave Matthews, man. Come on. Well, I'm about to quit this podcast <laughs> right now. Although that's not, that's not quite, you know what? DMB is not like they were never critical darlings and there's enough people deriding DMB. I'm not accepting that answer. Like the Rolling Stones are considered one of the five greatest rock bands of all time. I'm just not huge into them. So DMB doesn't count. Give me another one. Yeah, I guess. Uh, shoot. Leonard Skinner. Mm, maybe, maybe. All right. Anyway, gosh, throwing me off my game here uh classic songs with harmonica that i wouldn't list but mr tambourine man by dylan let me do the beatles of course isn't she lovely stevie wonder piano man billy joel three harmonica songs i love i would put what would you say by dave matthews band in this but it features john popper was their first radio hit and he's in blues traveler so this doesn't count long train running doobie brothers one of the best harmonica solos ever on a on a rock song uh take the long way home super tramp hell yes hell yes And then one of the greatest rock songs ever, When the Levee Breaks, Led Zeppelin, big time. You get some distortion on a harmonica, I'm there the whole time. By the way, if you're into me talking tunes, I do have, I almost never bring this up on this podcast. I do have a personal music podcast. Search Records and Riffs on iTunes. It should be on Amazon Pods pretty soon. 
I haven't figured out how to get to Spotify yet, but I'll try. But Records and Riffs. It's been around for a while. I rejuvenated it this summer. So Records and Riffs Music Pod with yours truly. I bring guests on. It's a good time all around. All right, Nada. Let's get another live chat question. What do we got here from the people watching on YouTube? All right. Tony Brown's got a good one. Thoughts on Arkansas and their ceiling. Are they too young to really be contenders? Do they stack up well with Kentucky? Yeah, no, I, I don't think they're too young to be contenders. I think Arkansas will be a contender next season. It's an amazing recruiting class headlined by Nick Smith, who, who finished number one overall in the 24-7 sports rankings for this past class. And then Muss has done it again with a pretty good transfer haul. They've totally restocked the front court following the departure of Jalen Williams uh, with vets. Uh, and, you know, Trevon Brazil, who, by the way, is coming over from Missouri, not a vet, but a, a player who really flashed last year. So you combine him with the Mitchell twins and uh, Jalen Graham from Arizona State. Front court should be solid. Then you got Nick Smith in the backcourt, a couple of other dudes in that recruiting class who should be good. It's it's the right mix. It's not too, too youth-oriented. Uh, and it's not just a total hodgepodge of random veteran transfers. It's a really good mix. And I think Arkansas will be just as good, or if not better than, you know, Muss's last two teams who have gone to the Elite Eight. Last two teams have gone to the Elite Eight. Last two teams were seeded third and fourth, respectively, in the NCAA tournament. Last two teams finished 18th at Ken Palm. Both the 21 and 22 squads were 18th overall. Uh, this season's team, I think, will be in a similar vein. Uh, ceiling? I can't now my buddy at ESPN, Jeff Borzello, he's I don't know if he's still got Arkansas one. He definitely had him at one when the season ended. I can't go that high. I can't envision this Hogs team winning a title final four ceiling. And I'd be surprised. I would be genuinely surprised if Arkansas is worse than a five seed. Now, remember, if you're a Hogs fan and you're like, there's no chance we're going to be as low as a five. Weird stuff happens all the time. You got injuries, teams that are expected to be top 15 quality. One or two of those inevitably always aren't even top 25 at the end of the season. So you just never know. But um, most likely scenario, give me give me three consecutive Elite Eight runs for Arkansas. They'll become the new the new Arizona under Sean Miller. Uh, but another three or four seed, and I think that they'll uh, they'll do pretty well. I'm I'm fascinated by that team. I've never been to that state, never been to that arena. Uh, I I'd love You've for them. Never to be- been to the state of Arkansas. Never been to the state of Arkansas. No, have not. I've, I haven't been to like, I haven't been to maybe twelve or thirteen states overall. Arkansas is not has not been on that list. By the so. way, this is not a listener question, but when did you get so tan? <laughs> uh, it just might be the lighting. I don't. Know. I, I I I'm outside with my kids all the time, and I run. Uh, you know, I run all the time. So I don't. I don't think I'm as tan as I look right now. You look like you just got back from the beach and you like that you were there for 10 days. I did not. I did not. I did not get back from the beach. But no, I guess I got I got a little bit of uh, I got a little bit of color going on right now. But yes, I know it's I'm, I'm aware. I just, you know, I'm, I got two young boys and I'm, I, I, we bought some soccer balls. I got to get a soccer goal. You know, I'm trying to teach my older one how to uh, how to catch a baseball. Great dad stuff. Great dad stuff in this in this July of, uh, Dude, who of would win if you and GP's kids were in an athletic competition against each other. Who, who would his win? kids? His kids are slightly older than mine. Um, and Parrish would destroy me in baseball. Parrish, that's his most natural sport. Uh, I'm 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 killing him in basketball. Oh, I'm beat, just, I, I've, I've literally played him, him in golf and have beat him in golf. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. I don't know. Hey, Matt, I don't know. Gary plays a lot of he golf. He plays so much. I know. It must be nice. He's probably playing right now. He's probably playing and listening to this on his phone right now. How are you doing, GP? No, 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 no. 
You want the six. You want the six iron on this hole. That's that's what I thought. There. What's your what's your handicap? What's your handicap? I'm like a 24. I'm not that good, but okay. I'm not terrible. I'm like I'm shooting consistently between a 95 and a 103 when I play. That's that's I, really what I'm playing. I think we need to have a ion college basketball uh, golf tournament so that the two I'm up for it. Two primary hosts, you and you and Gary, but then also me and KB will play too. And I think, uh, does Boone play? Yeah, I think he, plays, he, right? was, he was uh, browsing Twitter for looking for clubs advice the other day. So okay, yeah. there we go. We what we need we haven't done it in a long time. This is this predates both Nada and you and Boone pre-pandemic. Really, um, we used to have yearly, you know, get-togethers. We would go down to headquarters in Fort Lauderdale and and meet up. And do great things. We get a golf. We got to. We got to make that happen again. It's been way too long. We need a. We need, we were. They were called the Choops Summits. We need another Choops Summit. All right. Um, Ghost X L I X asks. All right. We got a big picture question here. I'll answer this in Cobb and go. Is March Madness in danger? I imagine that it'll be business as usual for the next five years or so. But beyond that, do you see the Big Ten SEC doing their own thing? And second take also asked within that. How do you think the fact college football is turning towards two super conferences will impact March Madness in ten to fifteen years? Again, I'll repeat. I think that the other three power five conferences are going to stay. I think they will continue to exist. They're not going to willingly give up the revenue share. There's a lot of stuff like unless the PAC 12 or PAC 10 is like outright threatened with its financial existence. I don't think that's going to happen. That's my prediction. Uh, The current deal for the until the tournament March madness on the men's side goes through 2032. So there could be changes before that, but I don't know how significant they would be. Um, I was told by one of the coaches in the room at the ACC meetings that Jim Phillips, the conference commissioner, basically told the coaches then at their league meetings earlier this year that there was no guarantee of the tournament existing the way it exists now beyond the next contract, which is not breaking news there. That's not all that shocking to hear, but they are open to that. Now, here's where here's where I want to dig into this a little bit. There is a chance the NCAA tournament could get messed with. Uh, it should not happen, and there will be a huge fight to prevent it from happening, but there are some who believe, I was told by a couple of sources, uh, that there are some who believe that the tournament should stick at 68 teams but go to all at-large bids, eliminate all AQs, the transformation committee, which is run by Greg Sankey and then Ohio athletic director, not Ohio state, Ohio. So mid-major representative Julie Cromer, they're evaluating every which way the division one structure should be reformed, reformatted everything. Right. And you better believe that the biggest moneymaker by far for the NCAA, because remember the football stuff, that's not for the NCAA. No, 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 no. It's the tournaments, the basketball men's tournament specifically that makes all this money. It's getting a look under the hood. It shouldn't be touched, in my opinion, but there is informal exploration right now about if the tournament should change. I'm not convinced that it will. I know for a fact there will be a fervent fight to stop it from changing. The question becomes, will the commissioners and presidents in power conferences, and in a weird way, it's like what's happening with the Big Ten and Pac-12. Is that actually helping this from not changing? If you have dissension among the power conference ranks, is that actually helping the tournament long-term? But will those conference commissioners be able to win out eventually if they want to? I think, come, you know, I'm sure Greg Sankey doesn't love the fact that Kentucky got knocked out by St. Peter's. And so he's going to look out for the own interests of his conference. Uh, I get all that. But, uh, but yeah, the question is, is March Madness in danger? 
potentially. I think potentially it is in danger, but it's a long ways from happening. And there are a lot of people that don't want to see the format of this tournament change. And so it'll be interesting to see if it can actually get to that point. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, th- I see the biggest issue with the future of the NCAA tournament being a future in which the SEC and the Big Ten uh, athletes at those schools are officially employees of the universities or employees of the athletic departments, because then the rest of Division One won't be able to keep up. The SEC and the Big Ten, the, the TV money will be such so extravagant that they'll probably be able to pay the basketball players, um, men's and women's, the some of the non-revenue sports as well, uh, an employee salary. But the rest of Division One will be in a different hemisphere because their TV rights deals won't allow them to be able to afford to do that. So I think that's where if you're a college basketball fan who wants to root for the future of the NCAA tournament as it's currently constructed, you might kind of need to be in favor of this deal where the football teams – are these, as you mentioned earlier, like licensing the brand semi-pro, almost separate kind of entities? Because then that allows basketball to continue operating under the current Division One structure without the employee issue driving a wedge between the SEC, the Big Ten, and then the rest of college sports. I think that, to me, seems like the biggest potential issue for the NCAA tournament in the future. It's going to be really interesting, and I certainly hope that – uh, the commissioners and presidents really understand that the tournament's not perfect. 64 teams is a perfect tournament. We're never going to go back to that. I have come to accept it, but never love it. Whatever I get, you get a 64 team tournament for basically 14 hours at the end of Wednesday's first four games. And then before you get there, you get a 64 team tournament. Uh, but having, I, you know, a uh, friend of the pod, buddy of mine, Will Leach, wonderful writer, it must have been like 10 years ago. He wrote something for Sports on Earth. RIP Sports on Earth. Um, website, former website. And he basically said one one reason why college basketball can you know, stake a claim to being arguably the greatest American sport is that every single team at the start of the season, if you're not on you know, academic, academic probation or just transition to D1, but you get what I'm saying. Every single team. Doesn't matter. Bethune, Cookman, as much as Duke. You know? Appalachian State, as much as Kansas. Doesn't matter. Stony Brook as much as UCLA. Gonzaga as much as SIU Edwardsville. You are eligible to play for a national championship. You have a path there. You can get to the NCAA tournament. You can wait. You can't do that in football. And it's it's such a wide, huge network. And it's really, really cool. Schools that are in cities with millions and millions and millions of people. And then schools like Davidson, which has one of the smallest enrollments in the entire country. And I love that about the NCAA tournament. I understand from a practical standpoint, yeah, I, I, I get it. VMI is never going to win an NCAA tournament, but it can it, it, it is actually physically possible. It's never going to happen, but they can actually do it. They can get the auto bid. Say, look at St. Peter's. No one would have thought St. Peter's would They got within three wins and winning the whole damn thing last year. And so I hope that the powers that be are able to think outside of themselves. And even if they want to examine the NCAA tournament, they don't remove the automatic qualifiers because while people will still watch any college basketball tournament that you put on March, there's brackets. You can bet on it. I get it. It will still be popular. There is a lot, not something. There is a lot to be said for the charm and the pull of small conference teams and how that brings viewers in. You go and check the highest rated games from this past NCAA tournament and St. Peter's was involved 
in you know three of the top ten or whatever. You, th- those schools will reliably they are a driving force with viewership. So just keep that in mind going forward. I don't want to ramble too much here. We are going long, but we're still going to go a little bit uh, a little bit longer here. All right, Ben Higgins asks if any four head coaches from college basketball were to start a cover band, who would be the members and what band would they cover? I'm just going to give this answer based on the head coaches I know that can play instruments. So Vermont's John Becker plays the drums. Cliff Ellis, you legend, Cliff Ellis of Coastal Carolina, one of the longest tenured head coaches in the entire sport. He was actually in a moderately successful band in the 60s as a bass player. Dude's got an incredible story. I wrote about it uh, way back in the day. If Tim Jankovic was still coaching SMU, he would be the lead guitar player. He can actually play real guitar, but he's no longer a head coach, so he doesn't count. I was scrolling through. There are probably a few head coaches that can play guitar well. I'm just not aware. Like, I... I I feel like I know a lot of the coaches that know how to play musical instruments. So I'm, I'm, I'm switching up. There's an assistant at Minnesota named Jason Kemp, who is legitimately a very talented guitar player. Shouts to Jason Kemp. Great dude. I talk with him more about music than I do about basketball. He's your guitar player. And then Tom Izzo can guest on accordion. He does that every Christmas. And then lead singer. Who's got the pipes? This I don't know. This I want to know. What head coaches do we think have the best pipes in college basketball. Now, not just because of his name, I, I just happen to know his musical styles. I think Tony Bennett can sing. Uh, but I've never heard him sing. But I feel like Tony Bennett can sing. Just saying. But my pick will be, I'm going lead singer, frontman energy. He loves music, listens to it a ton. He's in a great, he's one of the in one of the best music towns in the country. He can probably cover a lot of alternative rock, country. I'm going Chris Beard. I don't know how great his pipes are, but he would uh, he would certainly be able to handle handle the mic there. So that's that's my head coach band. Any thoughts? Yeah, no, I got I got Mark Pope as like if it's a screamer band. Oh, I I, I almost consider Pope exactly. I Cobb, I love that pick. I can totally see Pope going into some scream core. Absolutely. And then Todd Golden, if it's like a boy band, I could see him being the lead singer. <laughs> oh, absolutely wonderful, Golden. That's a good one there. That's a good one. Um. All right, Jacob Quarter asks, this can be quick. What is more important for a college program, in your opinion, talent or experience? Talent every single time, Jacob. And while there is much to be said for experience, you probably won't find a coach who would pick the latter over the former. They are going to take talent every single time. Experienced teams have a tendency to win in March, but if you really look at it, talented teams win plenty just as well. Now, experience won out over talent in St. Peter's against Kentucky. We get all that. But you need talent to win big picture, talent over experience. You agree? Got to be a mix. Got to be a mix. You're not seeing, I mean, Duke made the Final Four pretty reliant on one and dones. That increasingly has become the exception, I feel like. And, and so you got to have one or two one and dones, but you got to have uh, some experience as well. I think it's got to be a mix in this year. Yeah, but if you had to lean one or the other, you would take talent, would you not? Yeah, I suppose, but it also depends on what level we're talking about. If you're if you're a, an A10 program just trying to win a regular season league title versus if you're a a blue blood trying to win a national title. If you're an A10 team trying to win a regular season title, I'd take the the you know more experienced roster over the uh, the one that has a couple of flashy four star guys that are really good for that league in terms of a talent perspective. So I'd, I'd also think it depends on kind of what we're what we're trying to trying to achieve here in the sport. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. 
Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay. Nada, what else we got here in the uh, in the chat box here live from the from the viewers here? What do we want to tee up Cobb on? What do we got? <laughs> All right, let's take a let's take a look. Um, there's there's some decent ones. Let me go with the Austin Hall one because it's the funniest one for me. Okay. Does the Big Ten win another NCAA championship before it's destroyed? Wait, does the Big Ten win another NCAA championship before what the the tournament as we know it is destroyed? Is that what this question is? I I believe so. Because the Big Ten's not getting destroyed. That's not that's not happening. All right, what do you think, Dave? Well, I mean, what? It's been 20 years now since Michigan State won it. So, I, 22 years. I, before yeah. the, you know, before the NCAA tournament's destroyed, let's just say, for instance, that we're talking about that 2032 date that that we discussed earlier as, you know, the current contract or whatever. So that gives them, what, nine, nine or ten more cracks at it? Uh, and UCLA doesn't hurt, but, man, it's been a while since the Bruins have won a title either. I don't know. I, I really don't. I would say no because – I just don't know if, if they're going to have – all right, I'll give you this. I don't know if they're going to get the top-flight talent needed to uh, to win an NCAA tournament. Um, mark me – I, I want to say – I remember a lot of what we talk about this podcast. We touch on so many things I forget. I want to say that I said on this podcast in the past X number of months that the Big Ten will win a title before 2030. Maybe I didn't, but I feel like I said that. So I'm going to combine this question – I'm going to jump ahead from a few which we had pre-prepared. Colin man, Colin McMahon, because I'm going to, I'm going to bring in Indiana here. He said, if Indiana wins the national championship, what will GP do? The weirder the better. It's, first of all, like it's going to be a tough scene for Gary Parish if Indiana manages to win a national championship while he's hosting this podcast. His mentions will be a lava flow for a minimum of two weeks. Broadband speeds will leap. 20 years into the future if that happens. Uh, but here's the deal. Cobb, IU has five national titles. The last one came in 87. It made the 0-2 title game and made the final four in 92. Those were its only ones since it last won a national championship. This is by far the longest drought of Indiana hoops in terms of making the final four ever since the final four has been around. 20 plus years, right? So over under, Indiana wins another national title before 2040. Will the Indiana Hoosiers go more than... 50 years without winning a title. No, I don't think so. They'll, they'll get one before 24. They're getting one in the next 18 years. Yeah, they're on a really nice trajectory right now. I, look, I am not aboard this Indiana National Championship hype train right now, but like, let's just take baby steps here. And finishing above 500 in the Big Ten would be a really nice baby step for an Indiana program that really hasn't done that very often in the last several years. So I love that front court. You know, a lot of it depends on uh, Hood Shilfino and Malik Reno this year and how good they're going to be. But, yeah, Indiana will win one in the next 20 years. Yeah. Well, you don't got 20 years. You got 18. Um, 
I'll say so. I mean, that's so long, too. But the idea that if you would have told an Indiana fan in 2002, you won't make a Final Four in the next 20 years, it was unthinkable. Unthinkable. Even after night. Unthinkable to that fan base. But I'll also agree with you. As for the Big Ten, yeah, I think they're going to win one by 2030. The Big Ten has been rating as a top two conference frequently in recent seasons. It should it should be breaking through at some point there. We'll see. Um, next question. Kyle Craig asks, all right, and I, I intentionally didn't look at GP's rankings. I got to bring up this page here. All right, Kyle Craig asks, put all of the coaches in the top 25 and one on the Survival Island show. Who wins? Who's out first? So I'm literally going to bring up the page right now, okay? I'm going to bring up this page, and I'm going to just talk through this, okay? Here we go. GP's most recent top 25 and one situation here. All right, we got Gonzaga. So next is Hubert Davis versus Mark Few. Give me Hubert. Kelvin Sampson versus Hubert Davis. Oh, man. Hubert's younger. Got to go Hubert. Cal versus Hubert. Hubert. Shire versus... Oh, we got Shire versus Hubert Davis on Survival Island right now. Um... Give me the vet. I'm still sticking with Hubert. Now, okay, here's where it gets great. Eric Musselman, I have to take. the. I mean, I get such heavy Lord of the Flies vibes from this dude. I have to take Mus. He is now standing atop the mountain. You got Scott Drew, fan of the pod. We appreciate you. Uh, no doubt a family member of Mr. Drew is going to, this is going to, you got no shot versus Mus, and you know it, okay? You just know it. Bill Self versus Mus, give me Mus without a doubt. Although self sneaky, Rick Barnes versus Must. That is Must all the way. Tenth team, Mick Cronin. Oh no, oh no. Ah, uh, Mick Cronin versus Eric Musselman. Man, how about that? Let's go Duke. Come on. Yeah, let's go Must. Come on. I would g- give me Must still in that one. Although I'm not. I feel like Cronin's really like he's going Jeff Van Gundy. He's 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 latching onto a leg and he's not letting go. Uh, Creighton McDermott. No, still got Must. All right. I want your input, Cobb. Barnes, Chris, Eric Musselman, Chris Barnes. Battle Royale, who are you taking in that situation? Uh, well, okay. So when I read this question, I read it as like, who would win in a fight? Like, That's who what I'm be... thinking. You're on an island. You got to survive. However you're doing it. It's not just, uh, it could be physical. It could be whatever. But this is where well, we're like, at right it, now. If it's a physical altercation, Mus is the first one out. The man's shoulder is like perpetually like dislocated. <laughs> All right. Like I was going through this and realized like how many relatively short, unintimidating and unimposing college basketball coaches there are. Like, I'm not afraid of, of Eric Musselman or, or Mick Cronin. That's your, like, that's your first mistake. That's how you lose. <laughs> that's the problem. You I mean, so naturally I gravitated towards Juwan Howard as like, all right, if this is a, a contest, if this is going to turn UFC at some point, like we know he'll throw hands. We're, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. But you got to decide beard versus muscleman. So you're taking beard. Yeah, yeah. I do too. But then beard's losing. I'm sorry. I know beard's got some. I, Bruce Pearl's next. <laughs> I'm taking Bruce. Still jacked. Bruce Pearl is winning that. And then he's got Jamie Dixon. See ya. Uh, Tommy Lloyd. Sneaky feisty. Sneaky feisty. But Bruce is going to come out on top. <sighs> then we got a we got a newcomer to the ring. We got Bruce Pearl versus Kyle Neptune. Now, Kyle Neptune, smart bad dude right there. Mm-hmm. <sighs> give me it. Give give it, me give me the youngin. Like, I also youngin. think you're I think you're sleeping on Greg McDermott a little bit. Like that dude. I mean he's a big guy. He is a big guy. Uh, yeah. 
I did. I did. I did take Eric Musselman to to beat <laughs> to beat Greg McDermott, didn't I? <laughs> Sorry, Greg. Uh, we, uh, there's the train. There's the train. All right. So we've got Neptune on top now. Then you've got Mike Woodson, too old. Uh, you got Buzz Williams. Buzz Williams. I would not put it past him to to successfully figure out how to concoct some sort of poison on this island and and wind up winning the whole day. Hey, Matt, what do you think Buzz Williams' reaction would be if Greg Sankey called him and said, hey, man, did you see what the WAC is going to do with their conference standings? We're going to implement that next season. How do you feel about it? What do you what do you think his reaction would He'd be? He'd type up a 317-page manifesto about why it should <laughs> or shouldn't happen. That's what would happen there. Buzz Williams, give me him. Taking buzz and then Juwan Howard, forget about it. It's over. Juwan Howard. Juwan Howard, Dana Altman is the biggest mismatch. He's, Oregon's got 20 on GP's list here. And then you got Juwan Howard. Is, is, is Wisconsin on this, by the way? It's not. <laughs> We're not getting to Wisconsin. Um, Nate Oates, Juwan Howard the whole time. Juwan Howard, Matt Painter, Juwan Howard. Juwan Howard, Anthony Grant. I got to take Howard on size purely. Chris Holtman, you don't have a shot. Uh, Tom Izzo. Sorry, and then say, yeah, Juwan Howard wins. Juwan Howard's the winner. That, that was my conclusion as well. You gave Eric Musselman way more run than I would have, but Juwan Howard was was my winner as well. It's Juwan. Respect it. Um, not Alex98 asks, if GP couldn't use Twitter for two weeks, what would he do? Well, he would spend all day on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. Now, if you take away his ability to check social media, it's a disaster. He's probably trying to play 36 holes instead of 18. He's doing some dad duty with the kids, then eating up minimum, minimum four hours binge watching shows. But this is a question for GP. He's just not here to answer it. If he could not use social media for two whole weeks, I'd love to see it. I actually think it would be great for him. Got to get off. Got to get off the machine there. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Could could Uh, Pete? It's great. I love getting away from social media. Gary seems a little too ADHD, though, so hopefully he would channel that energy towards something constructive and not uh, destructive. But The great dichotomy with one Gary Parrish is that wonderful dude to, to socialize with, great storyteller, as listeners of this podcast well know, but it's either he's telling a great story or he's staring right into that phone and the glare is just like bouncing right off that face, right off those glasses. <laughs> it's like one or the other. He's either holding court or everyone else is talking and he's there scrolling through a phone. Come on, GP. Um, Jared Fields asks, I listen for the extortion advice. I want to know what the most illegal thing is you'd be willing to do for $5 million. You know what? Let's put a pin in this one and save this purely for Parrish. And unless you want to answer it, Cobb. Do you want to no, answer this? I, I have no burning desire to answer it, and I agree. Gary, Gary's answer would be better than what I would say. Well, Parrish, no, I mean, Parrish just seems like a guy exceedingly willing to state on the record... For posterity, the things he would be willing to do to break the law in order to get money. That's just not me. That's not my lane. It's not my bag. It's a GP question. Jared Fields, find us again on the next mailbag episode when Parrish is going to be on. Bring that question back because I know he's got a laundry list of stuff. Uh, okay, Josh Ask Vig asks, in each of your opinions, who will be the biggest surprise this year and why? Now, surprise could be surprise for the good, surprise for the bad. I'm actually going to tee up Cobb here first. If you got if you got one right, if you don't, I'll go. But if I think I'll give you yeah, no, I mean, I, I first team that came to mind, and, and not not in a sense of oh, look out for them to make a final four run. Like this isn't going to be a Brad Stevens peak Butler team. But I think Thad Mata's first Butler team could be surprisingly better than 
the last few Butler teams have been. Uh, Manny Bates, if he can regain the form he had as, as a rim protector at NC State, I think that he will instantly make that Butler defense pretty respectable and pretty good. Then they add Eric Hunter, who was a big piece of Purdue's success over the last few years. And Butler stood out to me as one of the big winners from the portal. So I think Butler with Thad Mata on the sideline in year one could be at least in the mix fighting for an NCAA tournament bid mid to late February. Teams under first year coaches, I feel like tend to fall off around that point. But even being in that conversation would be a a nice surprise for a Butler program that struggled as of late. Oh, I'll go two teams each way. Uh, and again, like I haven't, I haven't done the whole deep dive yet, but it feels, I would say, I would say Tennessee is getting a lot of run to be a top 10 level kind of team. Not that they won't be good. Sorry, Cobb. Sorry to bring it up. It's your false. Um, but if you told me they just drifted and we're outside the top 20, outside the top 25, I I'd believe it. But I'll tell you a team that's getting some buzz and coaching ranks over its potential. And like, how would you feel if I told you Xavier wins the Big East and gets a two seed? Would you believe me? Jack Nudgy, yeah. Colby Jones, Zach Fremantle, Adam Kunkel, Kai Kai Tandy back, Jerome Hunter. A lot of, with, with the unknown of Villanova right now and what they will look like under Neptune, significant roster turnover. Providence was the winner of the Big East last season. And don't come at me, Nova fans. I understand where you're going to be coming from with all that. There's kind of this vibe that like maybe Sean Miller walks and who, by the way, I, I fully expect will be suspended uh, three to six games to start the season. I think that will happen, but he could walk in and be right there with, with Nova, maybe Yukon Providence. Creighton is the biggest one to, to, to overcome because Creighton, I think objectively has to be considered the, the favorite in the big East, but I don't know. I kind of get uh, interesting vibes off that. So I'm trying to give you a genuine surprise. And I think Xavier winning the big East would be a genuine surprise. I don't think it's that unthinkable. You, know? you like it or not you buying or selling that. I a big East can be wide open. So that's part of my rationale for Butler as well as, I mean, that could be the type of league where you look up and everybody's within four games difference, you know, in the league standings in late, January, early February, you know, midway through the conference schedule. So I don't see anybody really running away with the Big East. And I don't know that there's anybody who sticks out to me as just like atrociously terrible. Like DePaul was at least somewhat more competitive under Stubblefield last year. I don't think they'll get worse. I think Butler will be better than, than it was last year. So sure, why not? I got three more questions. I'll answer these solo. Uh, not if you want to queue up uh, one or two more from the live listeners before we bounce out of here. We can we can take a couple more from from YouTube watchers. Thanks again for listening, by the way. Uh, I get I was asked what song. <laughs> Robin Span asked what song makes you instantly think of the other host. What song makes me think of Parish? Oh, that's easy. The answer, of course, is the 1994 hit by Sophie B. Hawkins, As I Lay Me Down. Next question. James asks, what three Guster songs would you ideally play with them in concert? Now, I believe I'm scheduled to play at least one song with Guster in a month from now in Maine. But the most fun to play, just, um, I'm rocking Guster. My Guster shirt. Ganging up on the sun shirt. Circuit 2006. Have you ever listened to a Guster album in full, David Cobb? I have not. But I'm really looking forward to your, your appearance with them. Is that still happening? It is. It is still happening, yes. With the laptop and all of it. The sticker, the whole deal. Yes, that will be happening. Um for the Guster heads who listen to this podcast, and there is some crossover, uh, the three that I would think I would have the most fun playing on 
would be Dear Valentine, which is a top five Guster song for me. Airport song, good outro, good jam there. And then The Captain, because it's just a fun, it's a fun strumming pattern. And I like the chords there, and that's a good one. That's a, also, that's a little bit of a deep cut there. Last question, then Nada, let's take a few from, uh, from the live chat. Tom Feely asks, what exactly is Jeff Goodman's deal? Tom tapped into a mystery that vexes people across the college sports landscape, media and otherwise there. What exactly is Jeff, is Jeff Goodman's deal? I wish I could answer it for you. I wish I, I wish I could, but, uh, but I don't have the, I don't have the answer for that. Trying to inject Goodman into the pod once more. A former, a former contributor to the Ion college basketball podcast when he was at CBF, Jeff Goodman now, uh, works at another media company, but, um, he's someone who covers college basketball. He is a friend on most days. That's all I got for you. Nada. What do we got? We're going to start with Austin Simpson's interesting question with Gonzaga's upcoming class. Even though they lost Chet and Nemhard, can you argue that they will be better than last year's team? Yeah. So for me, a lot of this, a lot of this comes down to, uh, you know, how good is Hunter Salas going to be? How good is Nolan Hickman going to be? Can they take big steps forward as, as sophomores and really boost that backcourt? I think Malachi Smith is a big help probably, uh, but he was not at his best in the NCAA tournament game for Chattanooga. I don't know. That's a small sample size. There's just a mystery around the backcourt. That to me is like the the clear question because I think Strotter and Timmy are going to be awesome. But then uh, how, how awesome are the guards going to be? If they're not going to be great, then Gonzaga is not going to win the national title. But if those guys, those that trio of Smith and Salas and um, got, uh, Hickman, if they can live up to their collective potential, then sure. Yeah, they could be better. Man, I like Hickman's breakout potential. I can't bring myself to say that this team is going to be better than last season's or the season before. I mean, it's possible, but to continue that again, I don't know. We'll see on that. Better than last season's team. Again, reminder, Gonzaga was the best team. Not only was it the best team, I'm going to bring up the Ken Pong standings real quick here. It was Comfortably the best team in adjusted efficiency margin, plus 3095. Houston was plus 2770. So more than three full points in adjusted EM, better than the second best team. Kansas won the title. I get all that. Like, but again, this is an objective metric evaluation at Ken Palm. It wasn't just Ken Palm. We're going to ask Gonzaga to do this again. We're going to ask him to do it again to be the best team three years running in Ken Palm. That's a, that's a feat that's hard to match. Right. Let me rephrase it this way. Are they more likely, is there a scenario in which this Gonzaga team is more likely to win a national title? And I think I think you can make the case, yes, if those guards reach their full potential. But if, if you know, Smith struggles to adjust against higher levels of competition, and uh, honestly, not that the WCC is all that much more difficult in the regular season than the, the SOCON, but you know what I'm saying. Like, if they're going to get elite guard play, they can go, absolutely go further than, than last year's team did. Here's why I can't. And now that you can tee up to the next one in a second here, but my, my closing thought on this is this doesn't necessarily always correspond, but two seasons ago, they had a top five pick in the backcourt. This past season, they had a top two pick in the front court. They won't have anyone like that on this roster, which doesn't mean they can't do it. That's really one of the appealing things about men's college basketball is the fact that you can do it without high level NBA talent. You need some talent, obviously going back to what I said before, but 
I can't bring myself to to get there when they don't have a Suggs or they don't have a Holmgren, even though Timmy has been the best player and he'll be back. He's such a key cog, and uh, I really can't wait to see him probably carve out one more season that'll put him among you know some of the greatest college basketball players of all time. And by that, I mean, like, statistically, Drew Timmy is going to have a, have a claim to being like a top 30 to 35 all-time college basketball player. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing that, but I'm not going to say Gonzaga is going to be better than last year's team. What do we got next, Nada? The final question for this summer mailbag was is from the Aaron five four six one. Is Kelvin Sampson a top three coach in the sport right now? Thinking about how he revitalized Grimes' career two years ago. I would say so. Yeah, Kelvin Sampson. I always wonder like what his career would look like at this point were it not for the issues he encountered earlier in his career for violations that really look petty in hindsight, because his career is amazing as is how amazing would it be if not for that derailment that he encountered there. So Kelvin Sampson, what he's done at Houston is unreal. Quentin Grimes's development is, is just one example. So I think, I think, yes, he is a, a top three coach in college. Yeah, basketball. If you're going to call him top three, you got to list out your top five and I'll go first. Um, <laughs> all right i'll go bill self one i'll go bill self one i will go man i will go tony bennett two yeah tony bennett i said it i still think he's that good i will go mark few three i will go scott drew four and I will go Kelvin Sampson five. That would be, I think that is my five. And it gets, and when you actually got to put pen to paper and actually put the names next to it, it gets challenging. It gets hard. There's a, there's a lot of really good coaches, but what I'm trying to do here is combine X and O ability on the whiteboard, recruiting capability, understanding, and actually running a program. There are so many things that go into being a head coach Beyond just the wins are the most important thing, but there's a lot of stuff in there. I think that's my order. I think that's what I would. Uh, I think that's what I would do there. What's your order? Yeah, I I want to put Mark Few first. It's hard to do that absent a national title. Though. Yeah, that's the only reason why. I'd, if Mark Few, I might even still have self won with a few title, but if if Few had won a title, he'd be higher. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love Scott Drew as a potential number one because of what he built because of what he took over. And that's also what appeals to me about Kelvin Sampson's candidacy is taking over a Houston program that was nothing and turning it into a national power that is now, you know, pulling five-star prospects will be the unanimous number one pick in the AAC, most likely going to go on another run this, this upcoming season. You know what? Uh, I, I would say I'll put Scott Drew one, one, a national Scott title. Drew one. One national podcast for mailbag episode redemption. One national title at Baylor. I'm not saying I mean, that he doesn't deserve to be there. I'm just loving it. I, I love he it. Won a national title at Baylor, which is a job that was perceived as, as a dead end it job. Like, you know? like, it would be like it's someone like, bringing Cal football to winning the BC. Uh, I said BCS, the college football playoff. Like that's what uh, sometimes I feel like we need to in, invoke these things to uh, for people to really understand how unlikely unthinkable it would be ever that Baylor could win a national title. Scott Drew did it. All right. What's the rest uh, of your Yeah, list? If anybody ever wins a national title with Cal football, I will unabashedly declare them the best. They're better than Nick Saban. I don't think Nick Saban can win a, a football national title at, at Cal, but okay. So I'll go with Scott Drew and then I'll say, 
Uh, number two, we've got Bill Self, reigning national champion, been at it a long time, seems to fit that that void now after the departures of Kay and, and Roy Williams. And then we'll do we'll do uh, Samson three behind them. He hadn't won the national title yet, but what he's done at Houston has just been unbelievable. Do you want to fill out four or five? No. We're getting a question. Any, where would you put Cal? Cal top five? John Calipari. He'd be right on the – I'd, I'd have Cal somewhere six, seven, somewhere in there. He's French. He's definitely French for me right now because it feels like his career is at a little bit of a turning point, and this is going to be a huge year. I just did a story that just published on Kentucky's roster outlook for the upcoming season, and by the time the 2023 NCAA tournament rolls around, it will have been four calendar years – since Kentucky won an NCAA tournament game. And think you've got the COVID year in there as well. So obviously that's part of it, but the loss to St. Peter's and now it's just, it just seems uncertain right now, whether or not Kentucky's going to reclaim that championship trajectory. So in terms of the totality of what they've accomplished over their careers, sure. Cal is definitely top five, but is he top five in the sport at this moment? I, I don't know that I would say that he is. And and so I would say maybe the same for Tony Bennett as well, which is where we differ. Um, I don't know. I, I I might even be tempted to put Bruce Pearl in, in my top five at, at the moment. I mean, he's, you know, if we're talking about guys who've done a lot with a little, Scott Drew, Kelvin Sampson, Bruce Pearl's right there with him in terms of what he's done at Auburn. He has indeed. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed this uh, somewhat breezy mid-summer, mid-July podcast. Look at Nadi. He's got Sia. Nadi wants to get the hell out of here. Nadi, you're the best. I appreciate you, bud. Um, thank you for listening. Continue to subscribe. If you enjoyed it, let us know. And we will continue. When we have these slow weeks, we will continue to drop some mailbag episodes and some fun little eps and uh, continue to watch Cobb Boone. We got some YouTube-only content as well to keep you uh, keep you fulfilled throughout the offseason. So thank you. And uh, uh, Cobb, you want to end this with an awkward pause? Sure. What's up, y'all? This is four-time NBA champ Andre Iguodala. Yo, and this is his best friend, the Ohio State legend, Evan Marcel Turner the first. Every Wednesday, we drop a new episode on our show, Point Four. We're talking basketball, business, and all the culture in between. From locker room stories to some basketball analysis from those who've been in the game. Now, it is a do-bet. Do average 29 and 11. God, shit. what'd it take to be an all-star? A win. Subscribe to Point Forward, the podcast, so you don't miss a thing.